Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Surely one of the pleasures of observing political development in Canada is to look at the state of journalism. One cannot think of events in the late 18th century without considering what the Quebec Gazette or the Halifax Gazette was doing. Can we imagine the rebellions of 1837 without thinking of the work of journalists like William Lyon Mackenzie or Ludger Duverney? What about the influence of the great Joseph Howe in Nova Scotia or George Brown in Toronto? Who can imagine the late Victorian era without thinking of Grip magazine, then run by the legendary cartoonist John Wilson Bengo? Journalists today, however, are under heavy weather. Their influence is challenged. Their ability to earn a living is under threat. With me in studio today is Robert Lewis, a journalist hard at work since the early 1960s. He's just published a book entitled Power, Prime Ministers and the Press. The subtitle is The Battle for Truth on Parliament Hill, and it's published by Dundurn. In this book, Lewis updates the story and examines the ever more complicated relationship between those who hold power and those who want to report and comment on the actions of government. Robert Lewis, welcome to the mic. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Bob, I want you to take us back to a moment when you were a witness to yesterday specifically March 1966, when a most particular issue made the news. That was the day I was in the House and Lucien Cardin, who was the Liberal Justice Minister, under fierce attack from John Diefenbaker, rose in the House and indignantly said, I would like the Right Honourable Leader of the Opposition to tell this House how he handled the Monsignor case. (laughs) And uh, with that, a couple of reporters fled from the gallery... Uh, Munsinger was a reference to Gerda Munsinger. Not a priest in Quebec. No, 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 no. Or Toronto. <laughs> or Toronto. As one of the reporters thought, he phoned his desk and he said, I think there's a scandal about a Monsignor in Toronto. <laughs> uh, actually, she was uh, said to have been an East German spy, uh, a uh, an escort, shall we say, in polite company, uh, who had had affairs with uh, two of Diefenbaker's ministers when they were in government, Pierre Sevigny and Defence. And uh, George Hees. George Hees, the trade minister, and uh, both of whom said that they had simply had drinks with, with her. We were all told that she was dead. Uh, in other words, no story here, boss. <laughs> uh, but uh, Robert regularly had a tip, uh, and the Toronto Star, where he worked, had suspiciously uh, a lot of information about this case. And it had been floating around in liberal circles for a long time because uh, Pearson had actually gone to the RCMP and said, look, we've had these allegations of other scandals involving my ministers. I want to know what happened the last 10 years. Of course, that happened to embrace times when Diefenbaker was in power. So he found out about the Monsignor case. I mean, this was kind of a, an act of retribution uh, by Pearson because he was trying to get even with the Tories. Anyway, uh, regularly goes to Munich. Uh, the old reporter's trick uh, goes and gets a phone book. <laughs> Uh, under M, finds Munsinger, comma, Goethe, calls her up, and the next day the headline was, Starman finds Goethe Munsinger. And with that, one of the great scandals of Canadian history unfolded. It led to a royal commission. It led to a rebuke of Diefenbaker and his handling of it. Uh, it led to a, a sex scandal. We had a Canadian sex scandal. We did. We did. But in fairness to Gerda Munsinger, she was never found to have been a spy. She was not a spy. No, no. Not that we know of. I mean, she was never a spy. But she was definitely an escort. She was... <laughs> I ask about this because I have the impression that the Munsinger affair changed the relationship between the media and the prime ministers. Do you agree or disagree with that? 
I think it had a lot to do with it. Uh, uh, there were other events down the down the road, but yes, it 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 was a, a breakthrough moment. Uh, it it was a story that kept on giving for a reporter. I it mean, lasted what, a long time. What a time to be in Ottawa, by the way. Well, t- yeah, well, a minority government. Yeah, yes, yes. You couldn't leave the place. Uh, every vote, you had to be there in case. Uh, there was a, a defeat, and then one night, actually, there was a defeat on a government bill. The Liberals are all off campaigning to replace Pearson, and they lost a vote on a budget bill. And he came back the next day and said, "Look, we, you guys, really didn't mean this. I've got a new motion, and uh, if you support this motion, we basically say that really wasn't a vote of non-confidence." It's the mid 1960s. There's change in the air. Uh, there's a new. I mean, there's there's a. I think I think government lost a great deal of confidence in the sense that the state was. For the first time in Canada, we never had a sex scandal like this. We we had a new vulnerability in Ottawa that ministers were actually ministers that, that they were they were men they were fallible that that this was very un-Canadian, This scandal we've never had this before. Um, now, Munsinger, again, was not found to have been um, uh, a spy, but she, I mean, her citizenship, pa- citizenship papers had been signed by Pierre Sivigny and George Hees uh, in 1960. Um, Pierre Sivigny took this, I mean, he's a war, he was a war hero, uh, took this very badly. Apparently, he started he started hitting Larry Zolf. He went after him with a cane. <laughs> uh, he was, he was inter- interviewing him on the doorstop of his home. And uh, he had lost a leg during the war, yes. so he, you know, he had a had a cane, yes. and he he swung this cane at Larry's head. Uh, <laughs> in his book, Zolf described this as his citizen cane moment. Uh, but you know, there was also Patrice something else that happened along the way uh, before the Munsinger scandal, which kind of set the table as well. There was the infamous pipeline debate, nineteen fifty six. That that to me, uh, you you might you know better than I, but to me that had a lot to do with the press turning uh, and becoming like the official opposition. Was it our Watergate moment? I'm looking for a Watergate moment. Well, if I, it's not I Munsinger, think, do you think it's the I pipeline think, debate? Um, of course, Watergate was broken by reporters. These things, the, the the Munsinger case, was a scandal that was broken by the Ministry of Justice. Yes. on the floor of the House of Commons. <laughs> yes, the pipeline scandal was something. It was a self-inflicted wound. You had an arrogant government. Uh, they wanted to rush through funding for a pipeline, which everybody conceded we needed, and there was no great scandal about the financing. I mean, in terms of how much money, but the problem was they brought in closure. And the speaker of the day clearly favored the liberal side. And C.D. Howe, the minister of everything, as everybody called him, was a ramrod, stiff, no-nonsense guy. He was a business guy. Business guy. Yeah. And I think the press gallery to a person said, whoa, this is not right. Mm-hmm. And even people like Blair Fraser, who was very close to the liberals and the establishment, uh, turned on the government. So to me, that was the, the moment when the press gallery sort of said, enough is enough. This is not right. And in fact, Val Sears famously gave voice to that a few years later when he said, stepping off a bus, come gentlemen, we have a government to overthrow. Indeed. Now, this is your first book. Um, What was it that you just couldn't resist? You had to tell the story? Well, it was kind of an accident. I I was chair of the Canadian Journalism Foundation. We had a panel in Ottawa, and the subject was, does the press gallery matter? And that got me thinking about the whole subject. And of course, then this is pre-Trump, by the way. He hadn't mm-hmm. become uh, prime minister. This was pre-Jody Ray- Wilson Raybould. Uh, <laughs> so it was a fluke that that I started on this back in 2016. Uh, but the more I got interested in the subject, the more I decided it was nor it wasn't a, a magazine article, which is what I had set out to to do. I said this is a book, 
And then I finally had uh, distinguished former journalists uh, like Tony Westall, after I interviewed him for like two hours, saying to me, Bob, what are you doing with this? And so I decided, like, let's do something with it. So that's how the book came about. Now, your book goes back to 1867, and in the early chapters, you cite a phrase to the effect that governments are extremely reticent to share information. This is something that echoes still today. Things have not changed. Uh, What is the source of that attitude? Why are governments so reluctant? Well, uh, as you point out in your your excellent book on prime ministerial power, I mean, these these prime ministers, contrary to kind of popular impression when everybody thinks that central government started with Pierre Trudeau, uh, I mean, these these prime ministers, McDonald, Laurier, Bennett, uh, Borden especially, uh, were all powerful. And, And their scribes in those days were kind of cheerleaders. And in the very earliest of time, uh, the governments dribbled out information to, you know, these playful fellows who covered us. Served the party. Yeah. Some right. of them served the party. There's also, I mean, there's also a vicious opposition on the other side. I mean, there were opponent newspapers also. Right. But but the parties, as you, as you say, owned the newspapers. Yes. In fact, uh, there's some great stories about how the seating in the House of Commons was determined by this tradition. If you were uh, working for a liberal paper, as the Globe, by the way, then was, and the liberals were in power, you sat to the right of Mr. Speaker, along with the MPs down below. And then if the liberals lost, you had to switch to the other side of the Speaker. I mean, it was that tight. Uh, McDonald uh, would, would fund papers and start newspapers, and if they weren't sufficiently conservative, he'd, st- he'd start another one. Laurie did the same. Yes, indeed. Now, when you think of the newsmen in English Canada that preceded you, and the book is is rich in detail on many of these people like John Defoe, John Willison, Grant Dexter, Grattan O'Leary, just to name a few, um, which one of these guys impressed you the most? Well, it was was difficult to play favorites because they were all such fascinating stories. They are. Uh, And in fact, I put Willison and Defoe together because they were kind of contemporaries in the gallery. Uh, but I guess I have to come down on on the side of Defoe. To me, um, here was a man who, like all of them, they they saw journalism as a way out of poverty. Uh, I mean, they grew up in log cabins and had very little education. Most of them barely made it through high school. So journalism to them. John Defoe, again, to, to, to inform our listeners, the editor of the Manitoba Free Press, right. Winnipeg, and then becomes and the then Winnipeg Free Winnipeg. Press. And these, these gentlemen... Uh, were able to kind of make it an acceptable company by becoming journalists. And uh, Defoe uh, started his career in Montreal, uh, where I think so many of the good ones start. I shouldn't say that, but... Um, <laughs> Your Toronto friends are going to be offended. <laughs> of course. Well, anyway, but he, because of that, he had a real understanding of Quebec. Um, he was there uh, working for the Liberal Party, by the way, and still as a journalist. But he, but he was uh, an internationalist, he was a big supporter of the League of Nations. Uh, he, he was very influential. He became basically the voice of the West uh, when he became editor of the Manitoba Free Press, which became the Winnipeg Free Press. He's also a quality newsman. He was. He's a good he writer. Was. Really and good uh, writer. I guess you could say a lot of them pulled their punches, uh, but he and, and uh, Willison later... Uh, they both decided they'd had it being acolytes for the Liberal Party, and, and they broke with Laurier. Um, and at that point, that's when Canadian journalism, uh, in my mind, really started, because these two uh, journalists in English Canada uh, basically set a tone that uh, evolved into what we see today, which is a kind of more traditional, uh, objective, in-the-middle 
observer. Now, that could be challenged, but... Well, let's continue the story. You start your career in the mid-1960s, you know, the, the era of magical thinking. Was it your sense that journalism was changing as you entered the profession? Well, ultimately, yes, but not at the beginning, because I was a, a police reporter sitting at a police desk, uh, listening to the two official languages, French and static. You started in Montreal. Yeah, uh, at the Montreal Star. Mm-hmm. Uh, taking notes about important events like five alarm fires and uh, bank holdups, which happened every Friday in Montreal <laughs> until they perfected the <laughs> defense mechanism. Uh, and then my job was to give the, the details to grown-ups, and they would go out and do the real reporting. But then I, I got my break. I got to Ottawa. Uh, it was 1965. It was the day the flag went up. Nothing to do with me, but it was a, <laughs> it was a demarcation point in, in the in the great debate because there'd been a furious contest about the flag sure. and the Canadian flag. And Pearson had won and Diefenberger had lost that battle. So it was, uh, and, and also at the same time, there was a whole bunch of us uh, who were university graduates. Which uh, is very important. We were among the first generation yes. of university graduates. Now, not that there were never any before, no, no. But, but, but it was kind of, a, a whole, and there were a whole bunch of us who, who, who landed in the gallery, Norman Webster, Jeffrey Stevens, uh, Joyce, Joyce Ferrickburn, Lyndon McIntyre, uh, people of that ilk, Marjorie Nichols. Uh, so there was a kind of younger cohort. I mean, I was 22 or 23. Uh, so there were a whole bunch of us in our 20s, and I think we brought a different sensibility uh, to the gallery, uh, including supporting uh, the entry of an, an equality for, for women in that place, which was an all-male uh, chauvinist. And your book is rich in detail about all these personalities. Um, it's, it's, uh, I think it's one of the great assets of this book is that, you know, we have a, a written record of who they were. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's more than an itemized list. It's, it's a really, a, a whole series of little biographies of the people who shaped your, your, your time in the sixties and seventies and eighties. Uh, you went on, of course, uh, in your career, you became editor of McLean's. Can you tell us more about your career? Well, uh, I spent the first few years in Ottawa. Then I, wor- I worked for Time Magazine for eight years. I went back to Montreal. I had this hard luck assignment in 67 of covering Expo. <laughs> um, and then, of course, there was other events, the Charles de Gaulle and, at City Hall and uh, Levesque being uh, run out of the Liberal Party. And then I was back in Ottawa for Time. Uh, and then I've, I worked for Time for eight years, including a stint in Boston. And then uh, in 75, I joined McLean's and opened what was then the first uh, bureau as a news magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was there for eight years, and then I became managing editor of McLean's, and then ultimately editor where I was for seven or eight years. The great years of McLean's magazine it was the heyday. It was the, okay. <laughs> yeah. What was your sense of how the power relationship was changing at that point between government and journalists? Are journalists more? I mean, we always talk about the Watergate effect. Was it your experience that journalists became more suspicious of government, more critical? There had always been criticism of government. Canada, Canadian journalism is rich with commentary and criticism. But what changed? What, what, what was your sense of how things changed in the 60s and 70s? Well, the big thing was Watergate. Uh, after Watergate, everybody wanted to be a journalist. And uh, now, of course, just about everybody is with the iPhone. <laughs> we'll, talk, we'll talk about that in a minute. Right. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so that was a big change. Um, and I think there was a growing sense uh, that the media needed to look behind the question period and, and uh, Hansards and sitting in the house. Like we used to sit in the house endlessly taking notes on the debates and filing them. So the relationship does change? More suspicion? 
Well, I think so. Um, and I, I think sometimes for the worst, frankly, I mean, along with the Watergate syndrome, there, there developed a whole crew of people who wanted to basically put people in jail. And, and that led to kind of gotcha journalism and, and confrontations and trying to, uh, trying to embarrass people and uh, catch them off guard. And I think that was an unfortunate development because it's, it's kind of bred an inward turning of politicians. They've retreated from speaking normally. They now speak in sound bites. They have aides and advisors, and, uh, and they, they have a kind of double, double speak that doesn't mean anything. And I think part of that is a reaction to the hordes of microphones that surround them every day. When did you stop beating your wife type questions? And the fear of being inconsistent. I think that's, that's the worst thing for a politician is that, yeah. well, you said that yesterday or you said something completely different yesterday. You weren't using the same words. What's changed? What's changed? And it puts the politicians in a terrible situation. They feel as though they have to justify whatever small change in rhetoric they yeah. they adopted. I mean, the invention of the digital archive is a, has been a killer app for <laughs> for journalists, but it's been a killer for politicians. for politicians. Now, in your book, I get the sense that you're sometimes sensitive to the the accusation of groupthink in the world of journalism. Okay, can you explain that? I mean, is that to what degree do you feel uh, that the world of journalism is subject to groupthink? Well, it is, <laughs> uh, and they're, they're kind of two levels. I mean, the gallery, quote-unquote, uh, which is an amorphous amalgam of people who work all over the city, but there is uh, on certain stories a kind of groupthink that develops, uh, every once in a while, a wise person, and in our case, it would be like a Doug Fisher, uh, who was very independent-minded, or a George Bain, would kind of crack the mold and say, hey, there's another way to look at this. But I think also on a larger level, journalists these days uh, are an elite, quote-unquote, uh, which, is, which is the allegation, and they float in circles that are indeed elite. And uh, I'm thinking of the the exercise of intellectual uh, thought that goes on. And I think uh, journalists tend to reflect the milieu in which they operate. Uh, so, yeah, there is, a, there is a possibility that, you know, a group think will take over a story. But, but on the other hand, I mean, there's lots of good journalists who, who pursue independent courses. And, and I think that's prized and welcome. Is there enough of it? No, because there's been so many cutbacks. Mm -hmm. We have so many people now who've lost jobs. There's fewer people chasing more information. There's this uh, get it get it first syndrome, which hurts the get it right part of it. Yes. Um, and and so the quality overall has has been reduced in my view. Uh, and I think as well, uh, the web and digital have had a really bad impact on. We've talked about groupthink. What about the other accusation, namely that the press gallery, the media in general, is much more liberal than, let's say, conservative? That there's a part of this groupthink is that uh, it, the the media, the press, is is overly liberal. I mean, small L, maybe uh, capital L also. What do you think? Do you think that's a fair accusation? I mean, you're, again, you're in your book, you're talking. Uh, you're focused on a generation of journalists that came of age in the 60s and 70s, after you've done your history, 60s and 70s and 80s. Looking back on them, were they liberal? Were they were they liberal in their thinking? Were they liberal in their approach? Can you explain that? You mean the uh, the institutions owned by uh, the Shaws of Calgary and uh, Bell Media and the Thompsons of Toronto, the Globe and Mail? 
I mean, the ownership is certainly uh, very conservative. Yes. Uh, but that's always been the case. I mean, uh, Defoe, for example, took a total different position on, on many issues than his owner, Clifford Sifton. Um, and I think that uh, happens today. But sure, uh, reporters generally tend to be small L liberal, but I don't think that makes them capital L liberal or partisan. I mean, I think your typical reporter has kind of grown up uh, thinking more about the, the little guy, the little person, uh, and what's right and wrong. And they get offended when they see people getting screwed. And I think that's what drives a lot of the, the journalism. They want to contest power's ability yeah. to do things sometimes arbitrarily. And despite the fact that, that they are considered an elite, the fact is journalists don't really have much power, and they know that. I mean, they see how much power a prime minister does or a major corporation. So they, they, their, their job is to challenge, to afflict the comfortable, in other words. Now, one of the great threads in your in your book is is thinking about the the influence of journalism in terms of its history, but also through your own experience. The reality is that today's newspapers are thinner and thinner. Uh, local papers have closed across the country. The viewership of newscasts is down dramatically. How does journalism fare today, in your view? Well, is there I'm still a, a power? I'm amazed that there is so much good journalism still being done. Now, I think it's being done by fewer and fewer quality institutions that have the money to send correspondence places to detach somebody for three or four weeks on an investigation. I mean, when, when we did a famous series for McLean's on uh, sexual assault in the Canadian military, I mean, we had a reporter on that for a month and a half. That was for the first story. Uh, it's rare that you see that opportunity anymore. The other thing is the the quick turnaround. I mean, a scoop lasts now 10 minutes, whereas in the old days, there was a kind of a rhythm. There was a scoop, and then the next day, there would be a reaction, and then it would kind of follow over the next few days. Now there's this frenetic pace to get the story. And I think a lot of uh, truth is lost in that gamble, in that race. And it, I mean, there's a cost to that. Journalism loses its legitimacy. Well, that's right. And, and journalism is... Uh, at the lowest level that it's been at in, in years in terms of, of the popular reaction. And we have earned that, you know. <laughs> uh, we wear it uh, because mistakes get made, stories that shouldn't be published get published. Uh, and so I think that the, the, the institution of journalism has got a lot to account for. And I think a lot of outlets are now making efforts to try and be more open and more transparent you see more and more stories now about how things get done and how stories get reported. And, and, and we have ombuds people now who are sort of reporting on their own errors. I mean, all of that is good, but we have to keep it up. Does the media, does the press still have the power to influence? Well, I don't know if it has the power that, that they had in the old days. Uh, but certainly uh, a major break in a story that runs counter to what the government is saying. And the extreme example is the United States where uh, Trump is exposed almost daily in lies and, and dissemination. But I think the power of the press now has to do with, with keeping people tru truthful and, and being honest. But the days of kind of influencing government, uh, like Defoe had a lot to do with, 
with Mackenzie King's handling of the whole conscription issue mm -hmm. and how he went slow on, yes. on conscription because of the experience that had uh, split the country in... 1917. In, in 17. Uh, I mean, these gentlemen had immense power, um, and they still do. They, they still do have a lot of power, but the press has influence when uh, it, can, it can break through the sort of fog... And, 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 and penetrate to the truth of a story. The fog now is social media. The social media is, is generating fog. Does the media have the, have the power necessary, the influence to cut through the social media fog, the, the, the allegations that, are, that, that, are, that, are, that crop up, the, the contradictions? I mean, I would assume it's impossible, but I wonder if there's a role for the media not to be so much critical. I mean, it has to be critical of government, of course, but also critical of social media. Is there room for that? And is that the future of, 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 of the press? Yeah, although I'm not so sure that the, the conventional media has anything to do with correcting or, or moderating social media. I mean, the, the anti-vax movement is a perfect example. I mean, I have seen endless pieces by reputable journalists, including Andre Picard of our own uh, newspaper and, and centers around the world, uh, trying to counter... Uh, the anti-vax that's segment. coming out through the but social it, media, it, it, it continues. You know, it's we've a got a we've got an epidemics of measles now. Yes. Um, so I, I think the, the 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 conventional media has uh, a limited capability. My sense is that power is shifting, and and I'm curious about the role of the media in all this. I mean, people have have, have abandoned. Well, and I, I mean, I think that's the right term. They're not buying newspapers. They, that's right. They are they are following social media. I, I see this in my students. Um, I mean, I try to get them to read the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail or the Sun, uh, or the National Post. I mean, I mean, forget it. Yeah. But they are on Facebook. They're getting their news. Uh, differently, even though all these institutions are online, of course, but they're getting their news differently. And again, it's sad for me to think as, as, as a fan of the media, as a fan of, of newspapers, to see that influence being lost somehow. I, 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 fear, I fear for the quality of our democracy, quite frankly. Well, that's legitimate because there's no doubt that, that readership uh, has declined, as has advertising, by the way. Well, and yes, that's when yes. they go hand in hand sure, because sure. the newspapers don't have the resources they used to. Google and Facebook are sucking up the vast majority of all the advertising, and yet they don't pay a lot for, for no. journalism. They no. pay nothing. So there's that. Does the media still have the power to comment in a way that is more sophisticated than social media? Can the media be more sophisticated than the social media? Well, I think it can. In fact, a, a good example is that social media is driven largely by what is seen in conventional media. I mean, if you look at the number of stories that uh, are linked to, in, in, and there may be a rant, uh, but it starts with a piece that's been reported by some journalists. Um, and the problem is, uh, I don't think that conventional media can penetrate some of the mythology on social media. And the great example is the, is the anti-vax stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, there have been any number of excellent pieces done about the dangers of not vaccinating kids. Yes. Uh, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of impact. We have a measles epidemic. Right. So uh, the powers of, of the conventional media are pretty limited. We're, we're living a, a quite historic moment, aren't we? In the sense are. of the media's power. We are. The transition. We are. And we don't know what the denouement is. Right. Now, let me ask you a very Champlain Society question, and it's about documentation. What sources were available to you in, in writing this wonderful book? 
Well, we're fortunate that in, in the earliest days there was no Snapchat or Twitter <laughs> or Facebook. Okay. These were all people who wrote. They wrote memos. They wrote cables. They wrote biographies. They wrote autobiographies. So there's a wealth of written information. Willison wrote his autobiography, Reminiscences. O'Leary, Grattan O'Leary, wrote his Recollections. Uh, Defoe's grandson wrote a, a beautiful book about what his grandfather was like. Uh, and the memos that flew back and forth between Grant Dexter and Defoe are a national treasure because this was at the height of the war. And these were all exclusive engagements that uh, Grant Dexter had with six or seven ministers every day. And he was reporting to Defoe personally to tell them what was going on in Ottawa. The free press wasn't running all those stories, but it was a way of communicating. So we, we are blessed. And then also we have the Library and Archives Canada, which is one of our great national institutions, uh, and the Library of Parliament that is uh, just bulges with, with documentation. In fact, there were a lot of oral histories that I came upon that were very useful. Yes. And uh, Tom Earle had done a lot of them. Uh, and Peter Sturzberg had done uh, some as well. And these were uh, contemporaneous uh, interviews with people and, and yielded all kinds of juicy new material. The last half of your book is based on interviews with your former colleagues, right. people that you encountered in your professional life. Are, are they going to be, um, are they, have they been recorded? I mean, how did you go they about this? They have been recorded, and uh, they'll probably end up in my little archive. Uh, well, I hope you deposit your archive somewhere where other generations will have access to it. Well, I, I do have one at York, but uh, but uh, this place is also uh, near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Very good. Thank you again for your book, and thanks for taking the time to share your insights with us. Thank you, Patrice. I was speaking with Robert Lewis, the author of Power, Prime Ministers and the Press, published by Dundurn. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on April 16th, 2019. It was produced by Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.